turn in the scriptures once again to the Pharisee and the publican, Jesus' parable in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, which will be the scriptural foundation for our second sermon on the fifth petition. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Once more, we look at Lord's Day 51 in the Heidelberg Catechism, which is the fifth petition. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, that is, be pleased for the sake of Christ's blood, not to impute to us poor sinners our transgressions, nor that depravity which always cleaves to us, even as we feel this evidence of thy grace in us, that it is our firm resolution from the heart to forgive our neighbor. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, last week we considered the basic meaning of the fifth petition, looking at this petition, this prayer to God for that chief blessing of forgiveness. And in the sermon last week, we emphasized the importance of understanding precisely what this forgiveness is for which we are taught to ask in the fifth petition. And that's why we, at some length, distinguished forgiveness from related but distinct theological concepts, Christ's atonement by which he paid for our sins, God's decisive act of reconciling us to himself by which he transferred us from a state of guilt to a state of innocence in his sight, reconciled us to him on the basis of Christ's work and objective justification. That one-time decisive verdict of God by which he declares to his elect people, I forgive your sins and I impute to you the righteousness of Christ. We noticed that Distinct but related to those concepts is the forgiveness Jesus teaches us to pray. And we defined that forgiveness, to simplify the definition, we defined it as the word of God communicated to us in the gospel every day in which he says, on the basis of Christ's work, I pardon your sins. I lift the guilt and I carry it away. I cancel your debt. And we notice that we experience that forgiveness day by day as we pray for it according to Jesus' command. We experience it, not because we do something to get it, but because God graciously gives it to us and communicates it to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I mentioned last Sunday, we're spending a little time on the fifth petition taking some time to address matters of controversy that have generated much confusion of late. And so in the second sermon on Lord's Day 51, I'm going to address another matter of controversy, namely the relationship of repentance to forgiveness. The relationship of repentance now to forgiveness as we've defined it, the the forgiveness that Jesus teaches us to ask for in the fifth petition. That word of God to us through the gospel applied by the Spirit day by day, which is a benefit earned for us by the cross of Christ. 
This treatment of repentance in relation to forgiveness is justified by the fact that, as the Catechism says, the fifth petition is the poor sinner's petition. The fifth petition presupposes repentance. And that's a point that we will come to see very clearly in the course of the sermon, that the only person who can pray this petition as Jesus teaches is the person in whom God has worked genuine repentance. And when you think about that, that's clear. Can an impenitent person sincerely pray, forgive me my debts? And when we see that, we will understand how the fifth petition sheds light on the question of the relationship of repentance and forgiveness. So we're going to explore that this morning, again, for clarity's sake. And I will strive to explain as precisely as I am able what the Bible teaches on this matter. And so the sermon is going to be heavy in doctrine again. We need sermons like that because correct doctrine is the foundation of the Christian life. But we always remember Doctrine leads to godliness. Doctrine is the food for the soul. Doctrine is not just brain clutter, but doctrine is for the heart. And so the sound doctrine of the sermon this morning, we pray that the Lord, that the Lord will put that doctrine in our hearts so that it transforms and guides our life. One last comment by way of introduction. In addressing matters of controversy, the spiritual posture we want to have is a posture of humility It's not about being right, showing others we're right. It's not the spirit we should have. And may the Lord keep that spirit from the heart of the one who brings the word this morning and from our hearts who hear the word. We have nothing but what God has given us. We're poor sinners. But for the grace of God, we would be enmeshed in error. Whenever we disagree with others in the Christian community, we must have a posture of humility towards them. Not lift ourselves up in pride. Not look down on them in a condescending way. Or mock them or ridicule them. It's not the way the Bible teaches us to deal with each other. The Bible teaches us to deal with those we disagree with according to the spirit of 2 Thessalonians 3.15. That we count them not as an enemy, but admonish them as a brother with humility, love, and compassion. And that's the spirit that we want to have in the sermon this morning. And the spirit we want to have in our dealings with those we disagree with. With brothers and sisters who have become separated from us on account of human sin. We esteem them. We count them not as enemies. Not as enemies. But we address these matters of difference between us humbly, with love and compassion. May God so grant that spirit in our midst this morning. Let's consider the fifth petition again, this time under the theme, the poor sinner's petition. We're going to notice in the first place that the fifth petition in and of itself has something to say about repentance. It is a petition expressing repentance. Secondly, we'll notice that the fifth petition is a petition seeking forgiveness. The penitent sinner seeks forgiveness from God. And finally, and what ties it all together, the fifth petition is a petition that points us not to ourselves, but points us to Christ alone. In praying this petition, we are resting in Christ alone. Repentance is a very important truth of the Scriptures, and that's clear from the fact that the call of the Gospel itself is repent and believe. And so the question with which we begin this morning is the basic question, what is genuine repentance according to the Scriptures? And rather than formulate our own definition, I am simply going to use the definition that the Reformed Fathers have given us in the Canons of Dort, Head 5, Article 7. That's on page 74 in the back of the Psalter. And during the sermon this morning, it may be worth your while to keep the Psalter open to that page because we're going to reference the Canons several times. But now let's look at Article 
seven of head five of the canons of Dort. And five lines into the article, we find our creed's definition of repentance. Fifth line, by his word and spirit, this is what God does by his word and spirit, he certainly and effectually renews them, his people, to repentance. And now what follows is the definition. This is what repentance is. To a sincere and godly sorrow for their sins, that they may seek and obtain remission in the blood of the mediator. Let's unpack that definition now. There's really three main elements that I'm going to walk through and carefully explain. In the first place, repentance, as the canons teaches, is a sincere godly sorrow for sins. That's the essence of what repentance is. It's sorrow. Grief over my sins. Grief that my sins grieve God. Godly sorrow for sin. And that comes out in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican again. In verse 13, you read the, Fer- or you read the publican's prayer and you get the sense that there is genuine sorrow here. And his body language communicates that sorrow as well. Psalm 51 verse 17, we see the godly sorrow that is the essence of repentance. Where David says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. That's repentance. Yet another Bible passage, Joel 2, verses 12 through 13. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. That's repentance, grief over sin. And the prophet goes on to say, rend your heart and not your garments and turn unto the Lord your God. Rending of the heart, sincere godly sorrow. That's repentance. And those two adjectives, sincere and godly, explain the kind of sorrow that genuine repentance is. It's unfeigned, it's not fake. There is such a thing as fake sorrow for sin. The apostle describes it in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, where he says, the sorrow of the world worketh death. The sorrow of the world is sorrow over the consequences that sin brings me, and that alone. It's sorrow over the pain, but it's not sorrow over the fact of my sin. The sorrow of the world is self-centered sorrow. It's, it's this, I'm sorry about the way my sin affects me and makes my life hard. That's not sincere repentance. Sincere repentance is from the heart. It's the godly sorrow, which the apostle says in the same verse, godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. Sincere godly sorrow is grief over my sin for what it is. Grief for sin as sin. Yes, we do have grief over the consequences of sin. There are consequences and they hurt. But that's not the main focus of our sorrow. The main focus is what our sin does in the eyes of God. As David says in Psalm 51 verse 4, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That's godly sorrow. That's repentance. It's not merely the intellectual apprehension of the fact that I have done something wrong, but it is a heartfelt feeling. And feeling there, not in the, in the weak sense of the word, but a powerful sorrow of soul over my sin which grieves God. That's repentance. It's sorrow. And now that sorrow brings about a turning. Repentance is a sorrowful turning away from sin and unto God. Repentance is an inward spiritual turning away from the sin that I am sorry for. And unto the God from whom I seek forgiveness. This is clear from scripture as well. In the first place, it's clear from the most common New Testament word for forgiveness. I'm sorry, the New Testament word for repentance. 
Jesus uses this word in Mark 1 verse 15, where Jesus himself says, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent ye and believe the gospel. And Jesus' word repent there literally means a change of mind, a turning of mind with regard to my sin. I see my sin now for what it is and I sorrow over it. I turn away from it and I turn now unto God. It's a change of heart and mind. And this fits with the Old Testament. The most common word in the Old Testament for repentance is simply the word turning. It refers to a turnaround of the whole person. So for example, Ezekiel 18 verse 30. God says this in Ezekiel 18 verse 30. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions. So iniquity shall not be your ruin. And we saw that in Joel 2 verse 12 where God says, Turn ye even to me with all your heart. So repentance is sorrow over sin, but in that sorrow we turn away from the sin. We renounce it and we turn unto God who we trust by faith shall be merciful. That's why the Apostle Paul in Acts 20 verse 21 His preaching is described this way as the preaching of repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So to wrap up this first element of repentance, we're looking at the fact that repentance is a sincere and godly sorrow for sin and that that sorrow is turning from sin and turning to God. And that now highlights for us this important point. That repentance needs to be distinguished from good works. Repentance is not something we put in the category of good works, but rather repentance is something unique. It's an inward change of heart. Good works, specifically defined, are works of love and gratitude done according to the law of God and arising out of a true faith. Now, as we'll see, repentance arises out of a true faith, but repentance doesn't belong in the same category as good works. Good works are obedience to God's law arising from love and gratitude, but repentance is something unique. It's a spiritual change of heart and mind, sorrow for sin in which I turn from that sin and turn to God looking for his mercy and grace. And that distinction between repentance and good works is biblical. A couple of verses to prove that. First, Matthew 3, verse 8, where John the Baptist preaches, Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. And he's describing the good works which demonstrate the genuineness of repentance. An inward spiritual change is manifest in a change of life. But now there he describes good works as fruits meet. Fruits that are fitting and correspond to repentance. He makes a distinction there. We read of the same thing in Acts 26 verse 20. Where Paul describes his preaching to Agrippa this way. He describes his preaching as calling his hearers to repent and turn to God. And do works meet. For repentance. And there Paul distinguishes repentance, which is a turning. He distinguishes it from good works which necessary, which necessarily follow. So the point is, repentance is something unique. It's God worked sorrow in the heart for sin. And it doesn't belong in the category of good works. It's something unique. So the first element of true repentance according to the scriptures. Sincere, godly sorrow for sin. Turning away from sin, turning to God. Now the second element that the canon's definition brings out. Repentance is a gift of God's grace. To unpack that idea, repentance is a gift of God's grace, which is ordained for us in eternity, in election. It is a gift of God's grace, earned for us by Jesus' work on the cross. And it is a gift of God's grace, worked in us, in time, through the operation of the Holy Spirit, and by means of the gospel. The point to be stressed is repentance 
is not a work that man performs of his own strength. It is a gift of God's grace, which God works in us. The source is not man. The source is God. The source is not the exercise of man's powers. The source is the spirit working in the heart of an elect sinner, working repentance in him. But as we know and understand from the scriptures, the way God works is he works in us and he makes us active so that we live out of his work in us. The spirit works repentance and we repent by virtue of the spirit's work in us. That's clear in canons 5-7. We go back there again and you look at the sixth line. By his word and spirit, God certainly and effectually renews his people to repentance. It's a gift. It's a gift. A gift of grace. Scripture teaches that. In Acts 5 verse 31, Peter is preaching before the Jewish leaders and he says this about Jesus. Him hath God exalted With his right hand to be a prince and a savior. For to give repentance to Israel. Repentance is a gift. All of God worked in us by the spirit. But worked in us such a way. In such a way that we actively repent by virtue of God's grace. Now that last part I just said about man's actively repenting. That's creedal. If you turn back in the canons to heads 3 and 4, article 12, and this is now page 69, very top of page 69, the right-hand column, canons 3, 4, article 12, the very last sentence, wherefore also man is himself rightly said to believe and repent by virtue of that grace received. So let no one say it's heresy to teach that man actively repents. The canons of Dort teach that man actively repents out of the Spirit's work in his heart. So, that's repentance. It's a gift of God's grace. As a gift of God's grace, it's ordained for us. It's one of the infallible fruits of election, Canons 1 verse 12 says. In Canons 1 verse 12, godly sorrow for sin is listed as a fruit of election. We're ordained, chosen unto repentance. God chooses his people and then in time he applies to them all of the blessings of the cross and one of them is repentance. And that brings us to the cross then. When Christ suffered and died on the cross... He earned and obtained for us all of the blessings of salvation. All of the blessings that the Spirit now applies to us in time. And one of those is repentance. Just as forgiveness. Both repentance and forgiveness are benefits of the cross that God applies to us in time through the operation of the Spirit. Of the Spirit. And so the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the author of faith, the Holy Spirit is the author of repentance, and the Holy Spirit is the applier of God's blessing of forgiveness. It is all God. Yet he is pleased to work in that way that glorifies him, that he makes us active as he works out our salvation. And that's important to maintain. So now wrapping up the second element, There's another important point to see here. And that's this. Repentance is always born out of a true spirit-kindled faith. And when you think about that, it makes sense. Faith is certain knowledge of God and trust in in the promises of his word. Trust in Christ. A man cannot repent Unless he first knows God and knows that God is merciful and knows his own sin. And we know our sin and see it for what it is by God-given faith. And we know that God is merciful and that he promises to abundantly pardon his people for Jesus Christ. We know that by faith. And so the way to think about repentance is that repentance is 
the necessary first fruit that springs from a Spirit-kindled faith. When the Spirit works faith in our heart, at the same time, He works repentance from our sin and repentance toward God. So that as we see our sin with newly illuminated eyes, we sorrow for it. And as we understand the Word of God, the Gospel, by faith, and we lift our Spirit-directed eyes to God, we see that He is a merciful God whom we are to go to and with whom we will find forgiveness. Repentance flows out of true faith. Spirit works faith. The Spirit works repentance in us. Now the third element. We've looked at repentance. It's sorrow for sin, turning from sin, turning to God. We've noticed that repentance is a gift of God's grace worked in us by the Holy Spirit. That it's the chief and first fruit of a living faith. And now finally, as the canons teach us, repentance is sorrow for sin, turning from it and turning to God in the seeking of remission in the blood of the mediator. The repentant sinner, as he sees his sin, comes to understand there is no hope for him anywhere else but the merciful God. And so he turns to God, and he looks to God for the forgiveness of his sins, and he seeks that forgiveness, and there's where the fifth petition fits. The fifth petition is the poor sinner's prayer, crying out to the merciful God, forgive us our debts. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And in making that petition, the poor sinner doesn't look to his own works. He knows he's a poor sinner. He doesn't even look to his poor sinner's prayer. But he fixes his eyes entirely and exclusively upon God and his mercy and upon the Christ who is the foundation of all salvation. As the catechism puts it, be pleased for the sake of Christ's blood. As the canons put it, seeks and obtains remission in the blood of the mediator. Christ alone, Christ alone. That's David in Psalm 32, verse 5, after his long time of walking in impenitent sin, after his sin with Bathsheba, he says in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Clearly in David's words, we see what the canons teaches us here. That as David confesses his sin, he sorrowfully turns from it. And he turns to God seeking forgiveness that he knows can be found nowhere else. And so repentance is not an act of man that turns inward and trusts in self. Of course not. Repentance, by definition, is a sorrowful turning to God alone. To God alone. It's a Christ-trusting act. That's repentance according to Scripture and according to the creeds. Now, to wrap up the first point, let's tie this back to the subject of Lord's Day 51, the fifth petition. The fifth petition, we see, is itself an expression of true repentance. It is the poor sinner's petition. And that means it is a petition that can only be prayed sincerely by a person who has been brought to see their sin and who sorrows for it and who has turned from it and turns to God seeking forgiveness. To put it simply, only the repentant believer can pray the petition for forgiveness. Really, the fifth petition arises from and vocalizes the sincere sorrow for sin that seeks and obtains remission in the blood of the mediator. Sincere sorrow for sin, born out of faith, faith that trusts God as the merciful God. That sincere sorrow vocalizes itself this way, forgive us our debts. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And so, the point needs to be made. 
only the repentant believer can sincerely pray for forgiveness. Think about it. Can a person who is willfully walking in a certain sin, for example, David, while he walked impenitently in his adultery, can a man who is impenitently walking in a specific sin continue to walk in that sin and at the same time go to God and say, Father, forgive that adultery that I won't give up and that I continue to walk in. Grant me forgiveness. Pardon my debt. No. No. That would be the Pharisee in this parable. The Pharisee in this parable cannot pray the fifth petition in his current spiritual condition because he denies he has any debts. Instead, he goes to God and he says, I'm not like that publican. I don't have the debts that publican has. In that impenitent condition, he cannot pray this petition. He must be brought to repentance. He must be brought to acknowledge his sin. We must see that we have debts before we may pray, forgive us our debts. If we go to God praying, forgive me this debt, all the while denying in our hearts that it really is a debt, we're lying to God. God sees that as not a sincere prayer, but as lip service. Apart from repentance, the poor sinner's petition becomes a proud hypocrite's petition. So let no man think that he can cherish a sin and hold on to it and refuse to acknowledge it and all the while pray this petition. Not at all. Not at all. We may not clutch sin to our bosom and continue to enjoy it. All the while asking, Father, forgive this debt. That's hypocrisy. Psalm 66, verse 18, warns, If I regard iniquity in my heart, that is, if I cherish iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Sometimes we do walk impenitently. Sometimes we do turn the fifth petition into the hypocrite's proud petition. And when that happens, that doesn't mean an elect child of God loses his state of justification or that God casts us out of his house or that he disinherits us or that we lose our adoption or that we lose the grace of God. That's impossible. But when a child of God walks impenitently and will not acknowledge his sin, God's word to him is repent, turn, And God extends his hand of chastening upon that wayward child precisely to accomplish that work in his heart and life, to turn him, to bring him to sorrow for his sin. And thus the impenitent child of God, instead of experiencing the father's favor and smiling countenance, will experience the father's disfavor and fatherly displeasure. It doesn't mean we've lost grace. But that's God's good way with us to bring us to repentance, to bring us to humbly bend the knee before him and pray the poor sinner's prayer instead of the proud hypocrite's prayer. Instead of denying our debts, instead saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's where the comfort is because we know our weakness. We know how easily we become this Pharisee in the parable. God does not forsake his own. When we walk in hypocrisy, when we walk in impenitent sin, he is the good shepherd who seeks the wayward sheep, who uses his rod to discipline and chasten that sheep, not to destroy the sheep, not to exile the sheep from his presence forever, but to bring that sheep back to him. To work repentance in our heart. Genuine repentance. The wonder of the gospel is that God never lets poor elect sinners go. Even though we sin against him, as we saw last week, time and time again, we're foolish like sheep. We throw ourselves into the ditches, into the jaws of predators. He seeks us. He finds us. He brings us back. He seeks and saves the lost and the wandering So we see the fifth petition is an expression of repentance. 
A petition that can only be sincerely prayed once God has worked repentance in our heart. And God, having worked that repentance in our heart, then drives us to himself so that we pray this petition seeking forgiveness. Seeking forgiveness. And now we come to the second point. Having defined what repentance is, having seen its relationship to the fifth petition, now we see that in the fifth petition, the repentant sinner cries out to God for the mercy that is alone found in Jesus Christ. And here, remember the definition of forgiveness that we gave last week. When the repentant sinner cries out for forgiveness, he's not asking for atonement that's done. He's not asking for that decisive, objective act of reconciliation that's done. He's not even asking for objective justification that's done. But he's asking for that daily declaration in the gospel applied by the Spirit to my specific sins of this day. The the declaration of the gospel that addresses me and says, that sin is forgiven for Jesus' sake. That's what we seek when we pray the fifth petition. That's what Jesus teaches us to seek. But now notice, and this is where the fifth petition decisively addresses a matter of controversy. The only one who can pray the fifth petition sincerely and seek forgiveness is the one in whom God has already worked repentance. And that means the God-worked activity of repentance must necessarily precede in time the reception and enjoyment of the God-given blessing of the forgiveness of those particular sins. The fifth petition shows us that. So how do we understand that? Here we're going to get into the matter of the relationship of the God-worked repentance, the relationship of that God-worked repentance to the God-given experience of the forgiveness of those specific sins That he worked in us repentance for. How do we fit those things together? How do we understand that relationship? The fifth petition establishes the correct relationship. And the way to think about it. The way to speak about it is this. The elect believer. Consciously enjoys. God given forgiveness. In the way of repentance. That language has had much controversy swirling around it. But it is biblical And it is orthodox language. It must be used correctly. And it is the incorrect uses that we must reject. But we may not and must not throw that language out entirely. Because it expresses an important biblical truth. And that's what I want to explain and illustrate and prove from scripture now. As we go forward in the second point. The God worked activity of repentance. Is the God ordained way. In which he causes us to experience the forgiveness of our sins day by day as we sin against him. And as he works in us that turning from sin and works in us that prayer for forgiveness and works in us that experience of forgiveness as we hear it declared to us in the gospel. Repentance is the God-ordained way in which God lifts that burden of guilt from our souls. To begin explaining this, we first need to clear away misunderstandings. Let's be very clear about what we do not mean. What we do not mean when we say we experience forgiveness in the way of repentance. In the first place, we do not mean that repentance is a condition. A condition is something That comes before something else. And that first thing. The second thing depends on it. That's a condition. There's A and then B. And B depends upon A. That's not what we are teaching here. Forgiveness does not depend or hinge on repentance. The basis of forgiveness is the work of Christ alone. Christ earned it for us. 
And it's rooted all the way back in election. God ordained it for us. Repentance is simply the God-ordained way in which he is pleased to cause us to experience it. There's no conditions here. The allegation that this teaching is conditional theology is an allegation that rests upon a faulty definition of what a condition is. And that faulty understanding of a condition is this. Anything that comes before something else is automatically a condition. The faulty definition, the faulty understanding is if A comes before B, B necessarily depends on A. To put it yet another way, the mere fact that something precedes something else in time is conditional. And that's wrong. That's wrong. And when we think about it, it's clear why that's wrong. If that definition and that understanding were correct, it would multiply conditions exceedingly. In fact, it would turn everything in your life into a condition. Let me illustrate that by an example. What is a wonderful God-given blessing of salvation that we yet wait for? The final resurrection of the body. That blessing will be given to us in the future on the day of Christ. But how many things take place in time before our final bodily resurrection? Regeneration, faith, repentance, good works. All of these things, God works in us before he raises our body on the last day. Now, does that mean all of those things are conditions for our resurrection? Of course not. Of course not. What explains the fact that all of those things come before our final resurrection? What explains it is that this is God's ordained way of saving us. He has ordained our entire salvation. And now throughout our life, he works it in us in his appointed way, in the way that pleases him. Just because something occurs first in time does not make it a condition. And that faulty definition has to be gotten rid of because it leads to confusion and ultimately it leads to absurdity. If that definition is to be defended, it has to be explained. How there are blessings such as resurrection that clearly follow God-worked activities in our life today. That brings us back to the point. The proper understanding of a condition is this. A then B, and B is utterly dependent on A. And that's not what we have here when we say God causes us to experience his forgiveness in the way of repentance. Because the forgiveness doesn't depend on the repentance. It's not caused by the repentance. It's not based on the repentance. The repentance isn't what earned it. Christ earned it. The repentance is not what satisfies for our sin. Christ did that. Repentance is not the basis, the ground, the cause. Repentance is not the means or the instrument by which we enjoy forgiveness. God simply works repentance first. Because that is his wise way. He brings us to our knees. He humbles us. He causes us to see our sin so that we turn to him. And we truly know we have no salvation apart from him. And just as graciously as he worked repentance in us, that graciously he speaks to us in the gospel. And he says, you're forgiven for Jesus' sake. That's not conditional. That's God's wise way. God's wise way. So clearing aside, clearing aside those misunderstandings of the language in the way of repentance, we experience forgiveness. Let's now zero in and explain precisely what that language of in the way of means. In the way of God worked repentance, the believer consciously enjoys forgiveness. What that means is God, in his wisdom and in his sovereignty, has joined repentance and forgiveness together. God has joined them in such a way that by divine design, repentance is the path. It is the way along which he leads the elect believer 
into the experience of pardon and forgiveness. To put it another way, God places us on that path of repentance. He works it in us. Because it is on that path that he is pleased to communicate to us the word of forgiveness in the gospel. And we can understand this by looking again at the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. The the Pharisee is not on the path of repentance. He is on the path of self-righteousness. He denies his sin. And on that path of self-righteous sin denial, God does not speak to him in the gospel saying, your sins are forgiven. God does not say to him, go home in peace. God has a different word for him. And that different word is repent. Repent or you will perish in your sins. But now the publican. He's on the path of repentance. Not because he put himself there. Not because he did something that God had to wait for him to do. But because God put him there. By his grace, God worked in the publican's heart. By his spirit, he worked that sorrow. And that's what brought him to the temple that day. He came to the temple to confess his sins. God put him on the path of repentance. And God led him down that path. And God caused him with the eyes of faith to see Christ in the altar and the sacrifice. And by means of that visual word, God then spoke to him. In answer to his prayer, God spoke to him, your sins are forgiven. That's all it means when we say, in the way of repentance, we experience forgiveness. Repentance is the way that God leads us into that joy of knowing our forgiveness. It's the way upon which the Good Shepherd leads us back into the smiling countenance of God. God has joined these two things together because He's pleased to do it this way. Can any man say, What doest thou? God, you may not do that because it makes salvation conditional. No, no. Let God be God. Let God work the way God is pleased to work. And let us instead admire the beauty and the glory of the way that he works. He saves us not as stocks and blocks. If he wanted unconscious, inactive people, he'd have made more trees and more animals. But he made human beings. He made us rational, moral creatures. Because he wants us to be conscious. As he saves us. As he leads us. Down the path he has ordained for us. He wants us to see our sin and to sorrow for it. And from the darkness of that sorrow. Turn to the only light. Which is his smiling gracious countenance. In the face of Jesus Christ. We experience the forgiveness of sins in the way of repentance. Because God works that repentance, guides us down that path, draws from our hearts the fifth petition as we cry for forgiveness and graciously through the gospel by the Spirit speaks into our darkness and says, forgiven. That's God's way. And this in no way detracts from the glory of God. This in no way reserves glory for man Or makes man the hinge point of salvation. No. It's all God. God works repentance. And then he works forgiveness. Repentance comes first. Then forgiveness. And the explanation isn't man. The explanation is God. It's God and then God. And so. There's nothing to fear. In this teaching. In fact. This is the teaching of scripture. Now I want to wrap up by proving that. I want to prove that. Because so much controversy has swirled around this doctrine, I want to show meticulously from the scriptures that everything we have said thus far is God's teaching in the Bible. As good a place to start as any is Psalm 32. Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. 
Here David describes in crystal clear language how the Lord conducted him on that path of repentance back into the experience of God's renewed favor and the forgiveness of his particular sins against Bathsheba. In verses 3 and 4, he describes his experience while being impenitent. Was his experience this while he was impenitent? I rest in the forgiveness of sins. No, he groaned inwardly. He was crushed under that burden of guilt. He did not have peace. And then David goes on to describe in verse 5, in most vivid terms, how God led him back to peace. I acknowledge my sin unto thee. God worked repentance in his heart. It's not that God was sitting there hoping that David would just do something and then God could forgive him. No. God in his good timing worked repentance so that David confessed. And then as verse 5 says, And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sins. God spoke to him through the gospel. And he had peace again. Not because he did something. Peace in the merciful God. To the next book of the Bible, Proverbs 28, verse 13. Proverbs 28, verse 13. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. And the grammar of the text is so clear. The one who confesses and forsakes sin, that's the God-worked repentance, that one shall have mercy. God conducts his wayward child down that path of repentance into the restored experience of forgiveness. Merciful pardon. 2 Chronicles 33, verses 12 and 13. This relates the history of Manasseh, who was a horrible king, a horrible sinner, and God chastened him by sending him into captivity, and it was in the dungeons of captivity that God worked repentance in his heart. And now notice the order of things. Notice God's way in 2 Chronicles 33, verses 12 through 13. And when he, Manasseh, was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God, And humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And prayed unto him. There's repentance. There's confession. Worked in his heart by the Holy Spirit. What happens next? And he, that is God, was entreated of him. That is God heard his prayer. And heard his supplication and brought him again into his kingdom. God mercifully restored him. Not because Manasseh's prayer earned anything. Of course not. God worked that repentance. Worked an acknowledgement of sin. And then God spoke forgiveness to Manasseh. Acts 3 verse 19. Acts 3 verse 19. The apostle Peter preaches to the yet impenitent Jews in Jerusalem. And addresses their sin of participating in the crucifixion of Christ. And Peter says, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. A literal rendering would be in order that your sins may be blotted out. And what Peter is saying there is repent and turn from your sin. And in that way you will experience in your consciousness. The forgiveness of God. He will speak to you in his word. I don't hold that sin against you. Same doctrine is found in John, rather 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The idea there is not that confession is a condition, God's waiting, and unless we do that, we'll perish. The idea of the text is when we confess, God is faithful and just, first of all to Christ, but also to us who are in Christ, and he will forgive and make us know it. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive. That's scripture. It's scripture. Everything we've said so far is scripture. Now the creeds. I mentioned Canons 5-7. We'll look at a couple articles in Canons 5. First, Canons 5-5, page 74. Canons 5-5, the Reformed Fathers explain that saints sometimes fall into great sins and walk in them for a time. And when this happens... They incur a deadly guilt. They grieve the Holy Spirit. They interrupt the exercise of faith. They very grievously wound their consciences and sometimes lose a sense of God's favor for a time until on their returning into the right way of serious repentance, the light of God's fatherly countenance again shines upon them. And the canons are making that point. This is how God leads us back into his Favor, the experience of his favor. He guides us down the path of repentance. Which he works in our hearts. Canons 5-7 again. Repentance was defined. A sincere and godly sorrow for their sins. That they may seek and obtain remission in the blood of the mediator. And now what comes next? may again experience the favor of a reconciled God through faith adore his mercies and henceforward more diligently work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. That same order is taught in Canons 5-7. I belabor the point again in order to emphasize the point. This doctrine is biblical. This doctrine is creedal. This is what the Reformed Church is by the grace of God have always taught. We must not fear to continue to teach it. One quote just to show that this is what our Reformed Fathers taught. Herman Huxema, in his commentary on Lord's Day 51, Triple Knowledge, page 604, says, only in the way of repentance and confession of sin can we obtain forgiveness from God. That's the truth of the word of God. But now, all of this theology, all of this addressing of matters of, con- of controversy, the importance, the importance of it is this, so that we as God's people may adore his grace and understand his way with us It's a generous, it's a gracious, it's a wonderful way. Look at how good our God is. Look at how he deals with us who so often day by day sin and transgress against him. It's a good shepherd, he seeks us. He brings us back on that right way of repentance. Speaks to us in the gospel, I forgive. And having experienced that, having been led through that valley, we adore all the more the riches of his grace. What a wonderful God. What a wonderful way. And so we wrap everything up, resting in Christ alone. That's where this petition brings us. That's where all of this doctrine brings us. It brings us to Christ and Christ alone. That's the purpose of the fifth petition. Not to point us to ourselves or our own resources or our own works or our own prayers. But to point us to God and to his Christ. We've stressed it over and over. Forgiveness is all for Jesus' sake. That's the catechism. Be pleased for the sake of Christ. Not to impute to us poor sinners our transgressions. And that's the promise of the gospel. It's the promise to you, beloved, this morning. As you bring your sins to him and confess, look to Christ. And in Christ you find a God who pardons abundantly. Who does not turn away the poor sinner. Who does not say, you've sinned too many times. You've sinned too grievously. I've had enough of you. Be gone. But he's the father who receives his prodigal sons and daughters, back into the bosom of his favor and his love. What a God. What a Savior is ours. Rest 
in Him alone. As you walk the path of repentance, confident in His mercy. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, as we have spent time addressing important matters of doctrine this morning and applying them to our hearts and lives, we pray forgive any weaknesses or sins that cleave to us in the explanation or in the hearing of thy word. And apply thy word to us that it may guide us in the right way of the Christian life and in the adoration of thy mercy and thy glory. For thou art so great and gracious a God toward us in Jesus Christ. Humble us before thee that we may be as the publican who daily come to thee praying sincerely the poor sinner's petition. And grant us of thy grace daily to go from our knees with that joy of salvation and that assurance that comes only from thee, that we are forgiven, justified in the blood of Christ. Hear us in mercy for Jesus' sake alone. Amen.